Lord, thank you for this morning that uh, we have this time with Scripture. Um, Lord, you do above and beyond what we ask or think, and you are always at work. And so in this moment, in this time, uh, we pray you will really speak to us uh, through a passage that appears to be um, a, a conversation with someone else about something else a long, long time ago. And uh, we pray that you'd, you'd help us to, to come home to us and to be deeply meaningful and even life-changing. Uh, but only you can do that, Lord. And so we ask you to do these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. So we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Um, I recognize, thank you, Justin, for reading. It was very nicely done. Um, all right, I recognize that. Some of you are like catching up, like what? Uh, what's going on here now? What are? What's the issue? What's the issues going on? I'm trying to catch up. What's the subject? What's the problem? So Paul is writing to the Corinthians. He's preparing for a visit. He is sending Titus ahead, um, and he's preparing for a visit. Now, what's going on is that the Corinthians uh, need to be corrected, uh, and they, in fact, need to listen very carefully to an apostle. So these are not idle words, and uh, Paul is defending himself. He's sort of in this situation, sort of kind of an awkward situation, if you've ever been in this situation before, have to defend yourself. Um, not always fun, right? Not fun to do. So Paul's in this awkward situation where he has to has to defend his ministry, what he's done, why he's done it. <clears throat> because uh, opponents of his have arisen in the church. And uh, so some of Paul's frankness might bother us. Um, his style might be a bit confusing. His appeal to being meek like Jesus, in verse 1, he actually says, well, I appeal to you by the meekness and gentleness of Jesus. Well, it might comfort us, but actually we find that he's somewhat sarcastic in some of the, these lines in chapter 10, 11. And that might bother us, but he speaks as an apostle. Now, none of us have ever met an apostle, so we don't know what these men were like, but apostles had to be qualified to be an apostle. You couldn't just say, oh, by the way, I, uh, I want to be an apostle. You couldn't just nominate yourself. You had to be one who had seen the risen Christ and been commissioned uh, by him to do that role. The, the role of an apostle was somewhat like, I could illustrate it this way, like when you're laying, uh, when you're putting down cement, a cement sidewalk, you have these two-by-fours on the side, right? They're, they're, they're the supporting, well the, the, well, the cement's still wet, right? You're setting up these supports. And then when the cement is hardened and ready to go and no longer needs the two-by-fours, what do you do? You knock them away, right? Well, we, uh, the PCA uh, and other uh, Reformed denominations, we don't believe that apostles are still roaming the earth today. Apostles came to a conclusion as an office uh, at the, when the, with the death of the last apostle. They were like the two-by-fours on, uh, on the cement. Okay? So these were men authorized to help the 
fledgling church get started. The church was easily uh, led astray, even when an apostle would come, like Paul, and establish the church and get them going on the, on the, the doctrines, the right doctrines, the core of the gospel. But we find churches in Galatia already going off the rails into legalism. And what happened was, strangely, there was a group of Jewish Christians, nicknamed Judaizers. And they would follow the Apostle Paul, and they would say something like this. This is my paraphrase, but it would go like this. Of course, Jesus is important, but... Now, that's the sign of legalism there, by the way. <laughs> Bing! There it is. Of course, Jesus is important, but... Right? Um, like you have to have this translation of the Bible. That might be in our, our day and age, right? Uh, uh, Jesus is important, but this makes you a true believer. This makes you really accepted by God. And so there will be some kind of legalism added, something you must do, uh, called a Back to Moses program with these Jewish Christians. For, there was, it was really a, a time that was difficult we might think of the church as being started, and boy, it's, you know, it's 55 AD, and we've got churches in Macedonia, and we've got churches in a church in Corinth, and a church in, in Galatia. We've got things going, right? Yes, things are up and going, but there's a great overlap between Judaism and Christianity. In fact, even the Romans didn't really distinguish the Christian faith for some time later. Always some sort of a, uh, what are you? Well, you're some sort of a Jewish group or something. So it was easy for people to look to Jerusalem and anyone who came from Jerusalem as having real clout, having, well, that's where everything started, right? And anyone who could really maybe teach the Old Testament with some flash and eloquence and, right? And uh, so this was a, a great allurement. And so to, to detach oneself from what God had done with Israel and said, yes, that was preparatory, but that wasn't the real deal. That was black and white. Let's get to living color. If you detached yourself from Judaism, you were somewhat seen as a little bit odd. Just kind of a, so Paul, who was at the center of Judaism, a Pharisee of Pharisees, is this remarkable accurate teacher of the gospel, revealing to people, this is the purpose of the Old Testament, this is the purpose of the stories, and it was always pointing to Jesus, and it was always about the gospel of pure grace through Jesus alone, and no one ever is justified by keeping the law, that was never, no one is ever justified by that way. So we have one who thought he could be justified by keeping the law, the Apostle Paul, We knew him as Saul in those days. Someone who thought they could be justified by keeping the law is now one who presents the purposes of the law, which which is to reveal our need for a Savior. Okay? So that's the background. Now, one of the things that's going on here is these who are Paul's opponents um, have crept into the church. They may have been civil leaders who were professing to be Christians, uh, but also uh, Jews who were, were, were uh, again, professing to be Christians. They may, have been, they may have had some authority already in Corinth. Uh, 
uh, it may have been added to the Corinthian luster to have them part of the church. You know, you've got a real mover and shaker in the community who's now a leader in the church. They most likely had taken hold of perhaps some small groups or small, small mini churches uh, within the Corinthian church. And Paul is now uh, being accused of, uh, one of the things he's being accused of is um, uh, he's being accused of being weak. That's really the first nine verses there that he's addressing that, and uh, I'll speak to that. And um, these intruders, I call them intruders, uh, have usurped Paul's territory. And they have accused Paul of overstepping his bounds. They're saying, hey, hey, uh, yeah, you're you're apostle for some other area, but Corinth isn't your area. Corinth is our area. And Paul's Paul's response is, well, I started the church. Uh, I've already proven it's my area. And, of course, we remember that Paul has been commissioned as an apostle to the Gentiles. That's his area. And he really wants to reach the, the ends of the earth, the ends of the Roman Empire. He wants to go as far as to Spain, we learn in the, in the book of Romans. And so they believe that Paul is usurping his, his place. Another uh, aspect is they have begun to call themselves apostles. Uh, they're just self-appointed. They've kind of come out of nowhere, but they have adopted this word. And, of course, that gives them all kinds of, of authority. The Corinthians didn't stand up for Paul. So Paul's very troubled for them, and he has some pretty hard things to say to the Corinthians and to these false apostles. And he does call them false apostles in chapter 11, and he calls them, well, sarcastically, super apostles. And then finally, um, these intruders have a certain level of success, and so now they've begun to milk the Corinthians for cash. And uh, and strangely, there's this weird argument that, and by the way, you know this Paul guy? He doesn't even ask for money. You see, he's not a real apostle, <laughs> something like that. And Paul has to defend his 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 style of of, of living and in, in this particular church, even though as apostles were supported by the church financially, for the Corinthians he didn't take he didn't take any financial support. Um, he didn't want anything to come in the way of their grasp of the gospel, as if he's in it for the money. And somehow this all gets twisted that Paul doesn't have much affection for you. Really, really unusual stuff, I think. So, what does Paul want? What does Paul want? And we're about to hear um, him sort of dismantle the arguments that have been labeled against him. But what does he really want? We might think of, we might think of Paul as really kind of, kind of egocentric here. We might think of, we might be troubled. He's just he's, he's got he's got authority issues. He's got and really what he wants. He says this numerous times. He says we use our authority. I use my authority to build you up. To build you up. I want your joy. I am not interested in uh, some position of power over you. I only want to use my authority for your joy. So he's preparing the Corinthians for his arrival. And he wants his arrival to be peaceful. So let me just go through chapter 10. And I want to just kind of walk you through some of the verses here. 
So hopefully they become a bit more clearer. In verse 1, he recounts kind of a, kind of a saying that was going on. I who am humble with, when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. See that little phrase there in verse 1? That was likely how uh, he was being uh, shown as being inconsistent. He doesn't really, he can write with authority, but he really doesn't speak with authority. Now we all know, and I've covered this a couple different times, that the Greeks were in, really impressed the days before, uh, uh, well, they were really impressed with speech. If someone had an ability to be eloquent and persuasive, they, at some parts of uh, some parts of Greece, they would actually believe that the gods had inhabited the person's speech. If the person could sway an audience, if they could be impressive enough to 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 move people emotionally, intellectually, and otherwise, it was the thought was that the. the a divine something had come over them. Now, this is creeping into the Corinthians. Paul may have stuttered. Paul, when he spoke, may have forgotten something he was saying. He may not have been that great of a public speaker. In fact, we wonder in chapter 12, he begins to tell us about a thorn in his flesh. And he asks God to to remove this, and God doesn't, and God responds, or the Lord responds and says, my grace is sufficient for you. Perhaps the thorn, we don't know what the thorn in the flesh was. Um, could have been these Judaizers. <laughs> could, have been, um, could have been his lack of eloquence. It could have been his inability to speak well. Perhaps he has speech impediment. But Paul, in verse 1, is, is essentially, he's begging them. Look at verse 2. I beg you, that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence, as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking after the flesh. Now, walking after the flesh is boasting in some self-accomplishment. Walking after the flesh is comparing your resume with someone else's resume. In other words, what makes you something or someone what credentials do you have? What makes you something? And apparently, these who were the usurpers or the opponents of Paul, these new leaders, false apostles, they were telling the Corinthians, you ought to get some letters of recommendation from Paul. Uh, after Paul had already planted the church and proven that he didn't need any recommendations. And it's possible that they may have been carrying around letters of recommendations from someone in the church in Jerusalem. Some of the commentators speculate about that. So these things, speech, letters of recommendations, all this stuff, Paul, we can be pretty confident, to walk after the flesh means to be boasting in your stuff. And Paul says, we don't walk according to the flesh. In fact, we wage war, and we don't wage war according to the flesh. Verse 3 Paul tells us that he wages war and he uses a develop a develops a theme of conquest. Look at verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but have divine power to destroy strongholds. 
Well, in war, and I think those of you in the military uh, have been trained in this, in war you are uh, trying to win. <laughs> uh, it's like Vince Lombardi holding up after the Packers had lost a, a game and going out to the practice, and he said, well, let's start with the basics. Holding up a football, gentlemen, this is a football. And, of course, the goal is to get it in the end zone. What is warfare? Well, it's not just a time to practice your rifle. It's a time to dominate, and it's a time to win. Now, if you like Christian apologetics, the idea of defending the faith, you'll get a good sense of what it's about in verses 4 and five and six, uh, four, 4 and 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Now, watch how the Bible helps us understand what strongholds are. Let's read verse 5. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Now, in the context of the Corinthians, it would be the lofty opinions of these Judaizers who have come in with their own fleshly opinions about why they're worthy of being followed, right? So, Paul says, we come with words that have power, to dismantle and to destroy what rises up against the knowledge of God. And this is argumentation. This is teaching. This is correcting. This is holding forth the gospel of God's free grace before a world that wants to reject it and provide another philosophy of life, another way of living. The gospel includes a declaration that man cannot contribute to his salvation. This is offensive. Man cannot save himself and needs to look to a bloody cross for salvation. So religion, human philosophy, atheism, and all the other isms oppose God's grace in Christ. They are arguments and they are lofty opinions. For the Corinthians, there is a creeping legalism that Paul has to deal with. Legalism is really, really bad for a church. It can destroy a church. And so our text is essentially a systematic, verse-by-verse argumentation where Paul is being put in this awkward situation to defend himself. And then this beautiful line here, look at uh, verse 6. And take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now, this is not just thoughts in some religion, but these are thoughts in our own hearts. Every thought captive to the free grace that's in God through Christ. So, every thought. And then Paul does use the word punish. This is, I'm pretty sure, this is the only time in the New Testament this word is ever really used, or at least translated in English as punished being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Now, parents, we know, I think we train here in shepherding a child's heart, punishment is really not the word we use. We use discipline. We use the idea of correcting a child in order to rescue them from, from harm and to get them back on the right path. Well, Paul here is serious about these who have brought in a false doctrine, and he is... We don't know what he's going to do. 
doesn't tell us what that means, but he certainly does threaten to come uh, with a, a serious uh, approach to the Corinthians. Now, his goal here is to correct them. And all we must remember that in spiritual leadership, correction is for good. God consistently presents to us in the Bible that correction is for our good. It is to rescue us from harm and from danger. Verses 7 through 11, Paul describes his apostolic authority and his power that will be demonstrated in Corinth a third time should it be needed. Verse 8, he's not self-appointed. And the purpose of his ministry is really described here. Look at verse 8. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. Again, the purpose is to build someone up, to get them back on the foundation, get them back trusting in the free grace of Christ alone, and uh, and build them up. It's not not the purpose of spiritual leadership to tear people down. It's not the purpose of spiritual leadership to uh, prove that someone is uh, just a terrible sinner and, uh, and, they, and they're not redeemable. Not at all. Not even close in the work of, of a minister, the work of elders. Not even close how we are, to, we are to build up people. It doesn't mean we can't use arguments, perhaps even sharp arguments, trying to get to the heart of the matter. He's actually concerned in verse 9. He says, I hope my tone doesn't scare you. (laughs) So he writes this way, right? And so he writes, he does write boldly. And he's afraid that by writing boldly, he will play into his opponent's hands. So, now, that kind of sets up. Is is Paul inconsistent? Is Is he weak? Is he not worthy of being followed? Well, he sought to present a plain uh, presentation of his, his speech and his apostleship. And look at, uh, uh, in verse 11, he says, in, verse, in chapter 11, verse 6, he says, Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. So he's trying to present to them reasons to trust him, He's not backing off his apostolic authority. Now, now let's take a look at, uh, at verse 10. I want to skip down to, uh, to verse, verse 10. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. Verse 11. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. In other words, we will be bold when we're present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. So here's what's going on with the the new leaders at Corinth. They are comparing themselves to each other, and they are self-appointed, Individuals who have taken have taken over a significant role in the church. Now Paul goes on to explain the parameters of his of his ministry. He goes on to explain that 
he has a right to be an apostle to the area of Corinth. I want to read for you a paraphrase of uh, starting with uh, verse 12. And uh, maybe this paraphrase will help us understand the flow of the next verses through verse 18. So hear this, and let's see if this helps put together. I think this does a pretty good job. We're not, understand, this is verse 12, we're not, understand, putting ourselves in a league with those who boast that they are our superiors. We wouldn't dare do that. But in all this comparing and grading and competing, they quite miss the point. We aren't making outrageous claims here. We're sticking to the limits of what God has set for us. But there can be no question that those limits reach you, reach to and include you. We're not moving into someone else's territory. We were there already with you, weren't we? We were the first ones to get there with the message of Christ, right? So how can there be any question of overstepping our bounds by writing or visiting you? Now, verse 15. We're not barging in on the rightful work of others, interfering with their ministries, demanding a place in the sun with them. What we're hoping for is that as your lives grow in faith, you'll play a part within our expanding work. And we'll all still be within the limits God sets as we proclaim the message in the countries beyond Corinth. But we have no intention of moving in on what others have done and taking credit for it. If you want to claim credit, claim it for God. What you say about yourself means nothing in God's work. It's what God says about you that makes the difference. Unpacking this, Paul is essentially saying, I, don't, I want Corinth to become alive to the free grace that's in Christ. And from there, you become a launching point for ministry. Do I want to step on someone else's ministry boundaries? Not at all. What I do is I purposely go where no one else is ministering. That's essentially what's going on uh, in, in 12 through 18. So this passage is somewhat we're looking at going, wow, this is so interesting. It's like, okay, so we got these accusations about Paul and his speech. We've got this whole thing about him overstepping his bounds and then Paul wanting to go to the ends of the world. And we might ask the question, where am I in all of this? How does this connect with me? I see that there was a problem way back then, but what does this do have to do with me? Well, let me just step back for a moment, and I'm going to wrap this up. But one of the things that's going on here is, at the core, the Corinthians lost focus on the gospel. And... Uh, as often as we do this, and often as often as we try to stay focused on the gospel, we've got to excel all the more in understanding the gospel. So back in the there's a Bible a table table where we give away free Bibles if you need one. There's a couple of pieces of literature there, and there's a booklet called "What Is the Gospel" by Brian Chapel, and I've read it and it's fantastic. And so if you want to you want one of those today? You got to bug me, and I'll get you one. I got a bunch downstairs. Okay, so what I'd encourage you to do is this: is that all of you need to know the gospel well in order to help your spouse, help your friends understand the gospel, 
help someone in an elevator. You're just talking and you're, you're going up and you have like three minutes to talk to someone and for some reason you, 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 you're having a conversation about the gospel and in two sentences you can give it in a normal English kind of way without you know, making it complicated. And so I'd encourage you to study the, study the gospel. What's happened to the Corinthians? And it's kind of, it's sort of, it sort of throws, it's disconcerting, I guess. The apostle Paul was the church planter. And they went astray. There weren't enough strong leaders in the church who would question these new leaders. They couldn't discern legalism. They could, and so Paul, look at all the ink in our Bibles. Look at all the ink in our Bibles because the Corinthians couldn't grasp the gospel. I look at Christian publishing today, gospel books. I'm glad there's so many gospel books. Amazing amount of gospel-centered books in the last 20 years. Fantastic. We should all grasp the gospel. And there's something about us where we just are forgetful. I hope it doesn't happen here at this church. You see, in the end, the Corinthians had lost the kingdom focus. And in the middle of all this, Paul talks about going to somewhere else. <laughs> I mean, I would think, man, alive, if I show up at Corinth, I'll be there for years. I mean, this is going to be a mess, right? Nope. Paul thinks, you know, if they respond to my authority, they get back on a free grace gospel, glorifying God through Jesus alone, I can go to Spain. They can support me for Spain, or they can get behind me, or we can train some of their, maybe we can train some of their leadership, and they can come with me. You see, missing the gospel on a human level affects kingdom stuff. An ingrown church focusing on the inside stuff, constantly, you know, inward stuff, you lose the kingdom focus. Paul went, like Jesus, to the outside place, wanted to bring in those who would never imagine that they could have a stake in the kingdom of God. You see, Jerusalem is no longer a magic place for us. We have no holy places, you know that. What I mean by that is that when Jesus talks about where God is worshipped, he tells the woman at the well that there will be a day when neither in Jerusalem nor here nor anywhere nearby here, he says the, they will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, and he means everywhere, Mongolia and Ecuador, and all around the world, there will be access to the Father through Jesus. My point is that there's always this aspect of the gospel that is moving. Churches go out of existence. The gospel keeps moving. A church can turn to some other something and the gospel keeps moving. Jesus was willing to go outside of the city, the place of curse, 
the place where they threw the carcasses that had been burned and presented in the temple. And now you've got this animal, the carcass of, a, of an animal. What do you do with it? You throw it on the town garbage heap outside the city gates. That's where they crucified Jesus. Jesus was willing to go outside to bear the curse. He was willing to go to a place of suffering, to step outside of the smile of his father, and to go into the darkness, three hours of darkness on the cross. He was willing to go and to travel there in order to reach you. And this same, the same kind of spirit is in Paul. He's willing to go to yet another, to another place that has not heard, to reach people who have not heard. What, the, what was the problem at Corinth? They were looking through the eyes of Greek culture. They were looking through the eyes of what made sense for them. And it's true for us. We look through the eyes of what we want, perhaps in a church, in a ministry, in a minister. And we turn away from the kingdom priorities that are in Scripture so clearly. Where are we looking as a church? Do we look to Jesus who was willing to suffer for us such that we would go ourselves? We'd have the spirit of going. Though we don't ever travel anywhere beyond our, where we live now, we have the spirit of going, meaning as we look out and encounter people, we realize I'm being led. God has acted in my life. He's moving in my life. The gospel should free us from these self-concerns and affirming ourselves and constantly, constantly having to be, uh, you know, this message of uh, that we're that should free us from our insecurities. And we love the fact that Jesus cried out, "It is finished." And now go, he told his disciples. Unique passage. Unusual passage, a lot of ink for a church that had lost its way. And God in his love kept an apostle on it. Kept an apostle persevering on it, loving it, wanting even when they had failed to love him, he still wanted to build them such is the love of God. May that building up characterize our church, characterize our demeanor. I hope, I hope we can learn what that looks like as we interact with each other and, and get a sense of, these, of these, what the gospel might look like in our relationships. Mm, let's pray. Lord, we look at this, this passage that has brought us into the, all the details of Corinth, 
and these, the situation that they had allowed to take place in their church. Father, your gospel does move. Father, if there's a, if there's a boundary, your gospel goes around it or under it. Father, your, your gospel can't be stopped. And Father, as Paul cried out to the Corinthians, oh, there are lands beyond you. Well, may I, I pray that you help us as, get a kingdom focus. Father, the details of this passage communicate to us what it looks like to lose our way. And we ask, Lord, you'd help us to live under apostolic authority. We love you. We thank you for the gospel today. And we pray that you'll help us to stay focused on it. And the free grace of Jesus available to us. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. The grace of God comes to us now in the table. And uh, today we look at the table and remember the one who came for us. So let me ask that you'd stand and let us prepare for the Lord's Supper from 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is the melding of two verses, verse 5 and verse 16 from chapter 2 and then chapter 3, verse 16. And uh, this tells us about our mediator. So before we take the Lord's Supper, we always like to affirm some aspect of our faith. And so this comes right from Scripture what do you believe concerning Christ? From east and west, from north and south, People will come and take their places at the banquet in the kingdom of God. He who did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Come then to the joyful feast of the Lord and be transformed. Great is the mystery of faith. Praise to you.